Hi everyone, my name is Marilyn Zackauer. I'm the CEO of Cosmic Centers and this is the Center State Podcast. A show where I invite incredible guests to come explore bold ideas about the future of work and learning with me. This is the very last episode of our very first season of Center Stage. We spent the last 14 episodes talking about the future of work and learning and met a ton of great people doing amazing things. And it seems like we always come back to this idea that the future of work and learning is flexible. It is one where companies and organizations are going to learn how to adapt and be inclusive. And for our last episode, I wanted to talk to someone whose company is fully adapting the flexible work model. I am joined by Shellhu Group's Head of Talent Acquisition, Damien Brown. Damien is passionate about the space, having spent 22 years in talent, spanning agency recruitment, executive search, RPO, HR consulting, and in-house talent acquisition, of which the last 11 years are based in the Middle East. Before joining Shilhu, Damien worked at entrepreneurial startups, FTSE 100 organizations such as Capita and Fortune 500 companies like Adeco Group and IBM, where Damien's interest in digital transformation across HR grew. His remit has included offshoring, automation, EVP creation, and reminding his teams to have fun. Now back to what Damien is doing today at Shilhu. Shellhub Group is a big organization with 12,000 employees across eight countries, and Damien is responsible for both digitizing, simplifying, and humanizing the talent acquisition processes while also leading diversity and inclusion for the group. Last year in June, as the UAE was coming out of lockdown, Damien and his team presented a remote work policy to their executive committee. What I love about the way Damien and his team tackled this is that they didn't see the policy as a one-size-fits-all. They took the time to talk to different team members, understand what their individual needs are, and they adapted the policy to make sure it was inclusive. In addition to speaking to their teams to get inspiration for how they would design their policy, Damien and his team were mindful of all the elements needed to implement an effective distributed model. They looked at tools, they looked at relationships between co-workers and their managers, they looked at how they could be inspired from other methodologies like Agile to implement the right rituals. Talking to Damien really made me excited for the future of work. Here's our conversation. Damien, I'm excited to pick up where we left off uh, at the Khalish Times Remote Workforce Summit a few weeks back. How are you doing today? It's great to be in your season finale. Thank you for having me. So. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here today. We didn't tell you, it's a surprise to you that this is our season finale. So today, Damien, you and I are going to talk about flexible work models in action, right? So even before the pandemic made us evolve into these new ways of working, there were many firms that were looking at developing more resilient work models, but the shifting really was slow. As we know, human beings don't like change. But now that the world has changed, um, we can start to explore both the positive and negative aspects of these new work models. According to EY, there are a number of structural and cultural barriers preventing organizations from adopting flexible work models. You and I were discussing the history of the five-day work week just a few minutes ago. Some of these barriers include restrictive policies, inadequate infrastructure, a culture of presenteeism and client requirements. But on the other side, we know that increasing flexibility can really positively impact organizations. It can increase employee productivity, engagement, well-being, can reduce the costs, and it can build business resilience and enhance brand and reputation. And you guys were one of the first groups in the region almost a year ago, right, to announce that you would be implementing measures to integrate remote work practices with your team. Tell us about how the last year has been. 
Tough, different, scary, uh, exciting. Uh, <laughs> I came into the business, uh, as we've talked about before, as a, a remote onboarder because the, the country was closed, the city was closed, so my laptop was delivered to the house. I got working remotely and straight away we could see that we just weren't set up for remote working as an organization. The group were brilliant. I think my first day welcome drinks were set up on Teams. I got to meet everybody after work for a digital social, but more widely, we just weren't ready. We have some amazing people in the uh, in the HR leadership team who got to work straight away in creating a playbook, basically. Uh, you know, what, what does remote working look like? How do we set up a, a, our home office? What should we and shouldn't we do from a manager perspective? What could they expect? And from an employee perspective, uh, how do we switch off? How do we have uh, boundaries? And is it okay for your son or daughter to come running in or the dog to bark at the uh, delivery at the door, whatever it might be? I've never seen so many deliveries being taken as I have in the last 12 months. Mid-call, I'm sure people do it on purpose. They schedule it for 11.15 just to uh, to get them out of a pickle. But, you know, I think it's been really interesting. Rather than just create the playbook, we then created a, a bunch of training around the playbook to activate it and to, to really get managers buy-in. Because as you say, I think there are a lot of people who manage through present before uh, the jackets on the back of the chair they're here they're doing a great job i think for people in tech it was easy because people in tech were used to agile ways of working they had their kanban boards they had their daily stand-ups and i remember the horrified look on some of my colleagues when they said right we'll have a daily stand-up we've even got to speak to each other every day so i think you know changing those ways of working integrating the new culture without touching your dna was probably the challenge. So our DNA as an organization has always been very people-centric. But suddenly we had to shift to you know, explaining to managers how to manage through deliverables, how to manage through a checklist. And rather than having a once every two month formal sit down with their team to be talking to them daily, at least weekly, uh, making sure how people are, and really sort of reaching out and making sure that people's mental well-being is okay. It was interesting, and I know you wanted me to share one of the stories about how we, how we got there. It was a, a labor of love when we were putting together a remote working policy. And I think it was June last year when we were presenting it to our comics and uh, went around the room and took different votes on whether we should or shouldn't launch our new remote working policy uh, at that point in time. And it was funny because beforehand I'd had my colleagues say, oh, I'm not sure the leadership will want us to do this. And, uh, I don't think the leadership are engaged as much as we think they might be. And sure enough, I was sat there in that meeting and uh, the comment was, shall we postpone this till September this year? And uh, we were sat there in June thinking we've got all you know all these people working remotely. We really need to give them some support. Why September? And you know our, our CEO said, well, at the moment I don't have. I've never had a home office. I, if I needed to work, I come to work. When I'm at home, I'm at home. All of a sudden, we're expecting people to work 24/7. There's no there's no cutoff. They don't have this separation between work and personal life. So wouldn't it be better? If we got everyone to return to the office now that the COVID restrictions have listed and we can get everyone back in physically. And then once people have come in and reset, then we'll launch the remote working policy, which I thought was beautiful because I think, you know, for me, it was the whole resistance to remote working policy being rolled out. What wasn't about we don't want people to work remotely. We wanted people to have balance. We wanted people to switch off. Sense prevailed or HR prevailed. And, uh, you know, we said that people are working remotely as it is. So we need to get going with this. And sure enough, we rolled out the program. And, and part of that, lots of new things came in. So, you know, one of them was that we allowed our people to work from anywhere in the world for a month a year. We had a huge take up on that program. I had uh, one of my peers working from New Zealand for uh, for a month with a seven hour time difference. Still managed to keep our core hours. I I'm still not sure how. I had one of my colleagues who decided to go and work in the UK in November which I think was brave. I had lots of different decisions around it. But yeah, it was exciting. I mean, it, we suddenly embraced 
all these different ways of working pretty quickly. The reason I wanted you to share this story is because we often assume, you know, people's positions about change. And what is really interesting and in, in, in the work that we do with the clients, this is when I know that I'm working with someone who has the ability to transform their organization is when they say, I'm not against change. I'm not an idiot. I've seen my company is, you know, five, 10, 20. I've worked with companies that are more than a hundred years old. And we've been through this, you know, those that are hundred years old, they're like, listen, kiddo, I've been through world war one and two. Like, I don't need you telling me about change, but I need to express the real worries that I have. And they're often not about oh my God, I don't like change. They're often about how is this going to impact our workforce? How does it impact our ability to innovate, to collaborate? Like real fundamental questions that do deserve to be thought about and not just thrown on the side and let's try and copy what other companies have established as a policy. So I think that digging deep and having open conversations about the real fears that good leaders have um, is so important for, for us to design work models that work. Another question that I had for you is, you know, of course... You mentioned upskilling managers and teaching them how they can manage in a completely different setting, possibly having to use a completely new set of qualities. What are the kind of skills that you feel, not just from a management point of view, but even across the board, if you had to say, these are the top three things that we felt we needed to teach everybody, what, what comes to your mind? One of the very practical things was, was um, to use new tools. You know, I, I think we all have this plethora of tools on our desktop and most of us had never opened them before that. You know, all of a sudden it was really upskilling. How do we use all these tools that you've got, you've always had? I think things like Mural and Miro were godsend to many of the management teams of a lot of companies and to the workforce because, you know, people wanted to have these breakouts and everyone had just been design thinking boom where everyone's creative and wants to run design thinking sessions. And suddenly we couldn't do it because we, we couldn't stand in a room with sticky notes and uh, post-its and stare at a board. So really being able to say to people, look, you've taken on the board these new skills to be able to really run great blue sky sessions with your teams. But now you can do it online and here's how you do it online and here's how you carry on that collaboration. So collaboration tools, training was probably the biggest thing. I guess then it's the, that was also the mindset shift to genuine trust. Presenteeism had this thing of, I can see you, so I trust you. I can't see you now, I don't trust you. Um, there was never trust to start with. So, you know, how to really build trust and foster trust between peers, between uh, managers and their team. And again, you know, for me, I'm a, a big advocate of agile ways of working and the, the whole concept of having stand-ups and entering into a um, social contract with your, your peers and your manager by actually saying what you're going to do out loud in a morning meeting. I think those small things really enabled us to start switching people to be able to trust each other and develop you know, really meaningful relationships and then have the tools to be able to collaborate better. Yeah, I think those are those three are really incredible points. Um, we have a question from the audience as well, uh, which obviously I wanted to discuss with you and we've kind of already touched upon. So I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it. Uh, Antoinette says, what has been the impact of the remote work program on productivity and employee engagement? How are you measuring those things? Productivity, we feel, has gone up. I think from feedback from business, from my colleagues, productivity has probably not been so much the challenge as the fear of burnout has probably grown for us because productivity has gone through the roof. Everyone's kind of dropped their two hours of commuting time every day and replaced it with two hours extra of working time. Yeah, you know, people have probably had less reflection time in their day. So, so we've seen an impact, I think, 
on the human element, productivity, great. Um, the human side, I think we've really started to worry right now as to, you know, how well are we embedding some of these practices? Because are people switching off? You know, and, and a lot of that comes to leading by example. I think if you send an email at 11 o'clock at night, then suddenly you're saying it's okay to send an email at 11 o'clock at night and I'm still working at 11 o'clock at night. That, that's been a big piece for us in terms of it measuring the impact. We ran surveys at the beginning of COVID to ask people, how many days a week do you think you need to be in the office to fulfill your role? I think something like 40% came back and said never, which was a huge surprise for us because we're thinking, why are we employing all these people in the highest cost location in the world, basically, um, and paying housing allowances, et cetera, et cetera, if you don't actually ever need to be here. Um, I think that was an initial knee-jerk reaction because when we ran the survey, again, the numbers changed somewhat. And, and I think it was people started wanting to gravitate to being back in the office and being back around their friends and peers. And I guess, you know, we've got one of our great, uh, leaders, uh, head of level shoes. She's a GM CEO who's recently joined us. And she wants the workplace to be somewhere that people can have fun with their colleagues. You know, when you build in those kind of environments, then it suddenly swings. So we have some teams who come in one day a week and they have a dedicated one day a week that the whole team comes in and gets together. We have other teams who are in five days a week because they they feel they need to be because they need the human contact. And my team in talent acquisition, they're, they're often in still doing some interviews face to face. So uh, my team tends to be in quite a lot. And then there are some teams who, who are uh, completely remote and it's really driven us to start looking at locations we've never considered before. We onboarded someone for data based in Thailand. We don't have offices in Thailand. We had never been on the plan to have people based in Thailand, but this particular individual couldn't onboard during COVID physically. We onboarded them remotely. It went pretty well. They're part of our leadership team within data. Um, and subsequently, we started building a team around them based in Thailand. So we now have a number of people based remotely in Thailand, which I say, I mean, if you'd have asked us nine months ago, it was never going to happen. It's not on the agenda. So we've reacted to those things, but it's been through feedback from the business. It's been about hearing what's working, is the productivity there and you know are people engaged you know what i think is truly incredible about the way you're approaching this is that rather than just say here's a blanket statement about how everybody's going to work there's a lot of flexibility and also humanity in your approach which is like we're all different some people want to be here some people don't some people just happen to be in thailand and we're just going to deal with it and it's really beautiful to be able to see that happening at scale you know like in small teams, you do that maybe more naturally because anyways, you know everybody, you know their name, you know their family, you know everything about them. I think it's truly inspiring to see this happening at a scale like Shell Hoops. How do you think that this kind of individualization of, of work model, to some degree, if I could say that, uh, how will that impact the way you work after the pandemic is behind us? Do you think you're going to be redesigning your offices? Absolutely. You know, I think, Marilyn, you, you've read the articles. It's it's out there that individualization, whether in TA, uh, whether in the candidate experience, employee experience, that, that's been the, the holy grail for, for so many organizations. And, um, you know, I think we've been accelerating towards that so quickly. We didn't do it by purpose, on purpose. It was an accident. <laughs> I think that it helped that our DNA as an organization is very people-centric. It was always people first. And that wasn't a sticky note on the wall that we're people first. We, we genuinely mean it. It was working out what is best for our people, what is best for each division. We're a retailer still, so we have people in stores, so we still need people in stores. But those people were amazing when we had the um, the first lockdown and we couldn't operate the stores. They were out helping with deliveries through the warehouse because they truly felt part of the, the whole ecosystem. So they supported our e-com activities by coming and supporting deliveries in their own cars sometimes. If you've got your culture right, then you can start to flex and you can individualize. I think going forward, 
we'll see more companies trying to individualize how they operate. Um, I've seen in the last week reports to say PwC are offering the Friday afternoons off through the summer in, in Europe. You know, there's companies we were talking about earlier, you know, the four-day week te- trials. So I think companies will be looking at what's right for individuals going forward. For me, a four-day week's not right. I wouldn't know what to do with myself right now. <laughs> so, uh, so it is different for everybody. And I think as an organization, if you can embrace that, that's probably the most important thing. I mean, I'll be honest, all of this culminated for us in an amazing annual seminar we just had last month. So uh, in 2020, we had the Coca-Cola Arena in Dubai and brought together thousands of our our top employees and leadership from across the group for our annual seminar. And it had always been a big physical event. This year, because of COVID, we switched, we went digital. We had a TEDx production. It was over two days, full true to TEDx format with short sort of segues between sessions. We were able to then have, uh, I think we had three and a half thousand people log on. So it was far more inclusive. We got more of our organization together and the feedback we had from the event was amazing. So uh, I mean, kudos to our internal comms team for the work they did in that. It highlights what you can do with remote and what you can do with digital and how you can still still keep baking in and pushing the culture, even without being able to get together for one of those real big events, like your annual seminar, where, where you know, you're setting your strategy out the following year. I think that's truly incredible. And you know, it's it's really interesting. I want to comment on that individualization piece uh, because coming from marketing as well, because I've always been on both sides. I've been on the human side and I've been on the external comms side. And I really think there's so much to learn from both sides. But marketeers have been trying to personalize and have the technology, by the way, to personalize the way in which they engage with customers down to individual preferences. The other day I was having a conversation with one of our clients where they're having a hard time with their internal comms because the specific population of people they work with, they don't check their emails. Like, let's put it that way. And I was saying, look, you know, we can put out a survey. They can select their communication preferences. And a lot of them had said, we just want a phone call. And they're like, how are we going to manage that? And I'm like, we can automate this. In the real estate industry, we we had sales calls that start in an automated way. And if it's just about disseminating information, then we know how to individualize interactions. And even from like, how do we communicate culture, which is maybe the next question that I'd love for us to cover. Again, I'm always saying like, we know how to communicate our brand to thousands of people we've never met. And yet we find it difficult to communicate our culture to people who we have infinite touch points with and so what's your view on how you guys are continuing to do that one of the things that we talked about on the last session together was you know communicate 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 i don't think any company can over communicate in the current climate but you're right it's about the right channels so as a group again with so many people who who work you know, I think 85 percent of our population work in a warehouse or a store so how many of them log in and check an email on a desktop or, or log into the internet you know we we've deployed new technologies across the group to be able to reach out and uh whatsapp is how so many of them want to hear from us so we have whatsapp groups we have sms groups but what we also do is is where possible physically bring people together so at the moment we have a, a program called called One Team, One Culture around our DNI, around our servant leadership program and some of our other core behaviors and, and cultural awareness that we want our, our employees to have. We found uptake was quite slow. You know, we were kind of four or five weeks in and 20 something percent of our population had completed it. And so then our HR and people team came back to us and said, well, why don't we start doing these as group sessions? So we would get a store together as a group and they would do the one team, one culture training as a store where they would watch the videos, they'd answer the questions. Then we'd do that with cohorts in the warehouse where we had these groups of people physically working together. Why not pop up a screen, get them to train together, make it more interactive rather than them having to lock themselves in the storeroom and and spend half an hour in front of a screen. So I think, you know, technology enables it, but you've 
then got to get cute about what you do with the technology. There's no point in just sending out WhatsApps and hoping it's all going to resonate. For me, the more and more we automate, the more and more I fear that we lose the humanization. You know, the two do go hand in hand. You can't automate completely your onboarding process because somebody still has to physically produce a gate pass or someone has to go and speak to Lenovo or Apple to order a device. Your ATS or your system or your HRIS isn't going to do that for you. It will send a reminder and a prompt, but we still need the human to do the activity sometimes. So. I'm always really, really cautious about companies who are trying to automate or trying to digitize or trying to drive AI too much because it it should be there to assist the human, not replace. How do you measure psychological safety in your teams? Gosh, um, so what have we done? We've um, we've had a number of programs. Right at the beginning of COVID, we invited Lighthouse Arabia, a fantastic organization to come in and work with us. We ran sessions for managers on how to spot issues with their people. We ran sessions for managers on how to suddenly deal with being an agony on and having to deal with everybody's issues. So there was a lot of work we did with our, our management structure, but then we put a number of services in place. So we had a helpline put in place where our employees or their family could call up completely anonymous and take some support from psychologists and coaches just to whether they wanted to talk about financial worries, whether they wanted to talk about health worries, whether they just had, you know, wanted to get something off their chest, that it was something run outside of our organization, but paid for by the organization for them. So they were the sort of early interventions we made when we were really in the, I think, the darkest period of COVID, April to sort of June last year, when it sort of was taking the world by storm. Since then, from some of the data in terms of how many calls were we getting a day, which countries were happier to phone up, which countries didn't phone up, we were able to look at what training interventions we needed to put in place for our teams, creating sort of mental health first aiders in different countries so that they were really able to, you know, as you say, look out for the signs, be able to support people, be able to just provide a safe environment for people to have a conversation and talk about their worries. Not easy because when we try and squeeze that around our day job, we know that we're putting a lot on people, but you know, we ran it as a volunteer program internally and so many people put their hands up and said, I want to take the training. I want to be here to be able to support my colleagues, which was fantastic. And it helps you bake in your culture even more. Yeah, oh, that's very heartwarming. Damien, that gets us to perhaps our last question. It's a question we ask everybody who comes on board with Center State. I'm going to ask you to complete a sentence and then I will ask you to explain your choice of word. And so the sentence is, the future of work is dot, dot, dot. Balanced. The future of work is definitely balanced. Whether that is our work-life balance in terms of, you know, I think organizations have had psychological safety and psychological welfare on their agenda for the last decade. It's certainly now at the top of the agenda for most companies, or it should be. So I think balanced is where we're going. I think the four-day week uh, we touched, we talked about it earlier. You know, five five-day week. I, I've read an awful lot about. It's a hundred and thirty-something years old construct. Is the five-day week? It's um, came into being. 100 years ago, uh, when the Ford Motor Company gave off a full weekend. And, you know, we've been working that way for the last 100 years, yet we have so much automation now, we have so so much technology and digitization that I I think the four-day week can't be very long away now for many of us. Um, you know, I honestly think in a hundred years time, people will be arguing about when it started because it's been trialed for the last two, three years. Microsoft in, uh, in Japan, companies in the US, Spain have got 50,000, uh, SME sized organizations trialing a four day week currently. 
when did or, do, or does the four-day week start? We're not yet sure, but uh, it's imminent. And then the other side of the balance, I think, you know, the future of workforce being balanced would definitely be around the automation and the humanization because one without the other doesn't work. The best analogy I ever heard was like the technology we have in an aircraft. A pilot can't fly a uh, A380 on its own and they need a lot of technology to support getting that aircraft up in the air and taking us on a smooth journey. Likewise, we can't fly that aircraft halfway around the world without a pilot. And so in all of our work environments, there is that blend of how do we blend the technology that's available to us, um, but how do we make sure we have an ample amount of humanization around it to make sure we give service and experience. That was my conversation with Damien Brown. I'd like to stress on something that Damien said that really stands out. If you've got your culture right, you can individualize. It's something that we speak and think a lot about in Cosmic, knowing that, of course, it's always easier said than done. But the truth is, companies that are afraid to experiment, that aren't sure how to manage people's performance when they're not sitting in front of them, that simply aren't willing to reconsider their ways of working, those are companies that don't have their culture right because they don't trust their employees. In those environments, leaders and managers really have to rethink how they establish trust and how they create psychological safety for the teams. And we know that when those ingredients are available, companies thrive. It isn't about having people sitting in a space where you can oversee their work. It's about aligning them to the mission and purpose of the organization so that they can create value for your customers. There is no reason why workplaces can't be happy places, places where people look forward to coming. Whether that's a virtual or a physical space doesn't matter. I want to take a minute to thank all of our incredible guests. We're so grateful for everyone who helped shape season one of Center Stage. And we hope you learned as much as we did from the remarkable speakers and that you'll keep an eye out for season two of Center Stage coming this fall. One last time, my name is Marilyn Blackauer. You are listening to Center Stage, the podcast, a show where we explore the bold ideas around the future of work and learning. Please make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast so that you can make sure you catch the second season as soon as it's out. Also, in the meantime, do follow our company, Cosmic Centers, where my amazing team and I share content frameworks, articles to support you in leading your team in the new world of work. You can find us on CosmicCenters.com or on all social channels, including LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on at Cosmic Centers. That's C-O-S-M-I-C-C-E-N-T-A-U-R-S. And as we like to say in our company, center out. <laughs>